Amen. Amen. Come on. Fantastic. You can take a seat. A huge warm welcome again to all the 180TC boys. We're so glad that you're here. Guys, they're absolute legends. We love being with you a few weeks ago and love that you can invade church with us this morning and be here and and share your story and what God's done in your life. And uh, I know we are just the biggest cheerleaders for you guys. And uh, as a church, we are so proud to support 180TC. We love to be able to do it. And I just wanted to say to you guys, as I said when I was at a chapel a few weeks ago, I just wanted to honor you for the decision that you've made. You've made a decision to make a turnaround in your life, to make a change in your life. And you know, that takes guts. But you've also made a decision to have the discipline to see it through, to say, you know what, I'm going to stick this course out. I know that my feelings may want to go another direction, but I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to do my best to to be the best person that I can be. And I just think that's an incredible thing. And so we honor you today for taking that decision and having the discipline to see it through. And we're, we're, we're cheering you on. And so we're excited. We're really excited. Awesome. So just before these guys do come, I just want to make you aware at the end of the service, we are going to receive an offering that's going to go direct towards 180TC. And so the guys are doing a ride from Sydney to the Hunter, and uh, we're sponsoring some of the people. Ken Watson's doing that. Chris Burns is doing that. Uh, I believe there's others. I think Megan may be doing it. I don't know. I may be speaking on her behalf as well, Megan Watson. And uh, so we want to really support these guys. So there's envelopes that are on your seat, and uh, you can consider as these guys are sharing their story this morning if you want to contribute to that, and then I'll prompt you at the end, and we'll give an opportunity to be able to give towards 180TC. But right now, I want to hand over to Ken Watson, who's an incredible member of our church, and uh, he's going to lead this section right now. Good morning. How are you doing? I came this morning past the coffee shop, and I said, are you new your first morning? I said, yeah, yeah, so I got a free coffee. <laughs> it was good. Praise the Lord. I've been coming to our church, Megan and myself, since the end of 1984. Nellie was here then, and Mary Court was here. And, uh, but for the last nine years, I've been going to rehab every Sunday, and Megan and Al Douglas, I think I should go all week, but anyway, so it's... Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic community. Now, we know that we've all got gifts in our lives and talents and we're unique and that's just so special about us. And the guys have got just incredible gifts and talents, all right? I know that. I know all that. But we're ordinary. We're just ordinary people. And um, Ben's in the spirit this morning, either we both are, because he's taken my words. The difference with these guys is they've got extraordinary courage, all right? They're facing the demons, facing the depression, facing the addictions, facing the hurts, facing rejection. They're facing the deep, life-changing problems that are there, and they're crying out to God, and they're standing up every day. It's, it's so good. It's so good. So I love 180TC. I've been um, serving in a support role for, for nine years, and this is my ninth year doing the ride. Last, year, last week, I did 500 kilometres on my road bike. No motor. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Mate, I'll tell you what, it's not going to be easier, is it, Chris? <laughs> We're up the helipad yesterday, rode our mountain bikes up, and oh, mate. Yes. Anyway, so we're going to hear some good things that God is doing. Nathan, where's Nathan, my good mate? Come on up. That's Nathan. 
I'll call the next person. No, no, we've got a little chair and everything. You beauty. You may be seated, boys. Hey, Nath. You see what I've got to put up with? Thanks. Um, first, I want to start off with a prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. So I've been in 180TC four and a half months. Um, this is my testimony. It's called Behind the Walls and Bars of Addiction, Recovery One Day at a Time. <clears throat> when I was three years old, a snake bit me, and it's taken 38 years to release the poison. My name is Nathan Ty Flavel. I was born 20th of the 6th, 1977. I was born in New Zealand, Central North Island, in a town called Tokoroa. I'm a Gemini and had a twin sister, Nicola Jane Flavel. She died on the 26th of the 12th, 2003, Boxing Day of a car accident. She fell asleep at the wheel and was also a fighting addiction. I'm the youngest of seven, and there's four families in my, one, in my family. I have two children, which I named. My daughter, Helena Ruby Jane Flavel, born 17th of 7, 2013, and my son, Nate Tanner Michael Flavel, born 13th of the 9th, 2014. I've spent one Christmas and one birthday with my daughter and none with my son. I was selfish in my life of addiction and now I carry guilt and shame because of it. <clears throat> my addiction took my ability to be a dad. I lost the capability to be emotionally mature on any level. I was seven when I had my first drink. From the age of 13 to 17, I was a poly addict. <clears throat> I was attempting to commit suicide by the, time, by the age of 17. Um, addiction by then, but unaware now, had stripped me of all my boundaries, values. I had no love in my heart, unhealthy communication, unhealthy sexual relationships, relationships with my families, partners, friends, dealing drugs, dealing with gangs, Crime, associates, surrounded by people, I never felt more alone. My childhood, we moved here in 1980 with my dad's forestry company. We moved to a town called Tumut in the foothills of Mount Kosciuszko. It was a beautiful town. It was like um, Tokoroa just had snakes and spiders. <laughs> Everyone in the community looked out for one another. All the kids were looked after by, by other people in the community. And it was a beautiful place to grow up. We had everything we needed there. <clears throat> My behaviour from three years old, I was disruptive. I acted out a lot. And I know now that it was a cry for help. But back then, I was disciplined pretty hard by my mother. Started with his hand, then the spoon, then the jug cord. I used to go to school with welt marks on my body and I'd come home with more. Because back then, the cane was introduced. My mum knew no better. That's how she was brought up by a violent father who was an alcoholic. That's how she brought the boys up because she thought if she smacked it out of them, they wouldn't, wouldn't grow up to be the same. I grew cold because of this. Um, the teach, my teachers back then were quite abusive. I used to cop lashings in front of the classroom, both legs, 
used to get picked up by the ears and thrown around because I was disruptive. And back then, the teachers um, knew no better themselves, you know. Um, in year six, I spent half the, half the year in the hall. I had no recesses or lunches, but I passed, I, I passed the exams with, with um, high marks. I ended up in high school with all the brainy kids. Um, when I was about seven or eight, I was sexually abused in our family home by my cousin. He was the same age as my brother. It happened again when Dad moved me down to him because he was unaware. <clears throat> I was a victim to the sickness and he took my power, which I'm slowly gaining back. Um, at the age of nine or ten, my mum and dad divorced. I wanted to stay with my dad. My mum told me I'd never see her again. I, I said, that's fine. And she said, I'll never see my twin sister and my other sister again. I was broken. I lasted six days with my mother. My dad came home from work via the pub. At about quarter to eight at night, I was cooking my specialty, which was scrambled eggs and tomato sauce. <laughs> Spent many a nights with dad crying myself to sleep. Um, where am I? On June 99, on the 20th, which is my birthday, I received a phone call. I was running in kitchen in Inaloo, and um, I received a phone call at 20 to 6. Service started at 6 o'clock. I refused to take the phone call, but on the third time I went to the phone. As soon as I heard my mother's voice, I answered her, what's happened to my dad? He's dead, isn't he? He'd passed away the night before in his sleep. I went back to New Zealand. We buried dad. It was very complicated because um, there's drama with my brothers and sisters. And I went back to Perth and hit the drugs. I slowly fell apart. <coughs> Life got so bad for me back then, I left the state on the run. I went back to New South Wales. I cleaned up, then hit the drugs more, then um, flew to New Zealand. I was living in New Zealand when my twin sister died. Four months after I returned... I walked into Tauranga Emergency Hospital and collapsed, later to wake with pneumonia. They said it would have killed me if I had come in that night or the next day. <clears throat> that was also the addiction. In 2016, October 22nd, I entered junior jail 58 kilos for robbery with intent with weapons, serious indictable offence. I had a stab wound in my leg. It was five and a half centimetres long, went in one and a half um, inches just missing my femoral artery, that was also addiction. You could see I was powerless. It wasn't my um, inability, it wasn't my addiction that crippled me, it was my inability to have any coping skills on, on any level. I, I knew, knew no better and I was too scared to ask. I had no guidance. The guidance that I did have was, um, yeah, it led me down the wrong track. In January... 26, 2017, I come out of Bathurst, 87 kilos, to my best mate's farm. I entered an outreach program in Wagga Wagga called the COPE program. I lasted nine weeks. It went for three months. I lasted nine weeks. I appealed the decision of being exited. They allowed me back. By the time I came back, I was already heavily in addiction. <clears throat> November, 27, uh, November 2017, I went back into jail. I ended up having a price in my head and found jail to be a little bit tough. So I was carrying shoes, protecting my life. 
um, this year in John Moroney on the 12th of January at 12pm. Things changed for me for the worse. I was stabbed in the lung and the liver and um, was fighting for my life. There are three levels of, of the of fight flight of the um, there are three level, levels of the brain survival mode: fight, flight, and freeze. I started on the flight, on the fight, ended up stuck on the freeze. I came to, I was standing at the end of my cell. I had blood splattered from one end of the cell to the other, and I was panicked. Um, by the time the guards came up. And got me, I was sitting on the toilet. Then they shut down the jail. Took them 44 minutes from when they first came to my cell before the ambulance had arrived. By then I was hyperventilating. I kicked everyone out of my cell. And there was one nurse sitting there telling me just to breathe. I had a few occasions where I couldn't breathe. But um, by the time the ambulance arrived, I was pale white, hyperventilating and nearly about to faint. And I could see on the nurse's face that it was serious. I could tell from the amount of blood that was splattered from one end of the cell to the other that um, I needed some, room, some help. They flew in a helicopter for me. I got out in um, February on bail. I lasted nine days. For six days, I ended up high. Ended up locked up in the psych ward, and then I walked back into the police station and handed myself back in. This is also addiction, powerful. I thought I was safer in jail. So I hadn't, you know, my inability to be able to handle life on on life's terms. I I struggle. It's getting better for me now. I got released in April. They downgraded my charge. I pled guilty. I got released to my sister's care. She flew down from Sydney to get me. I thought I was going to be staying with her. I stayed with her one night, ended up in a boarding house in Newtown. Three and a half weeks later, ended up on the run, down in Wagga Wagga, on more charges, and back in the holding cells. Luckily, um, I'd been in contact with 180TC when I got out in February, also um, when I first got out of parole. So I'd, I'd done my phone assessment. Because I wanted to change. I was writing to my mother while I was in jail. I had no coping skills to be able to handle life on life's terms. I needed help. Or else, you know, for me, it was death. I've tried to commit suicide. OD'd that many times, been stabbed, had bad things happen to me because of my addiction and my inability to be able to handle life on life's terms. My emotional maturity goes back to a three-year-old child. And, yeah, sometimes I fall back into that way. So, coming into 180cc, I came in on the 14th of May this year. I was mentally, physically, spiritually, family damaged. Spent on every level, but I had, I had um, for some reason, I had, had hope. I had hoped that something might change, you know? I had that tiny little spark inside me that wanted something more. Also knew that I had to explore every avenue of myself and obtain every piece of information to allow myself to be honest, holistic approach, and to truly want recovery. Hope, hard open, please enter. 
allowed me the wisdom to know I was in a safe place and I could start to let go of what I think I know of, of what myself and what I 100% factually know about myself. This allowed me to change. I've been a drug addict for 27 years. I had no boundaries to live life on life's terms. I had beliefs, morals and values that were, that were false. No forgiveness for myself and therefore unable to forgive others. Extremely low self-esteem, therefore distorted views of my self-image. I didn't know lo- what love is and unable to love myself. I had grief and loss and mental illness. I have post-traumatic stress disorder and high anxiety and depression. But that wasn't going to stop me, you know. It wasn't going to stop me. My life and addiction and traumatic events were always in my rearview mirror. Never forget your past or you're deemed to repeat it. These, however, no longer define Nathan Tyfe level. I have moved... I've moved all up, last count in 2015, 104 times. And I've added another 32 moves on top of that. I kept running for myself. Always wanted to be someone else. I never, I never felt comfortable in my own skin. My roots are deep in 180TC. I have a heart for the place now. Rescue, restore, rebuild is the 180TC's motto. T.A. Maori order. I have a help, a higher power, but I'm afraid to label it. But I embrace its love because something in me is changing, yeah. you know. And I'm, I'd be blind not to see it. Yeah. I'd be blind not to see it. I have a lot of people to thank in my recovery. The ones who've always been there is my family, my mother, my sister, my stepdad, their partners, and my two beautiful little kids. <sighs> For the newcomers, the trick is to take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Recovery is one day at a time. That's what I heard, you know. I heard by these guys, they had 30 years sobriety and I wanted what they wanted. And they told me just to do that. So I started doing it. And, I'm, you know, the funny thing happened, I heard something, you know. I heard something. The 180TC Rehabilitation Program caters for all individuals. They allow them every opportunity in their religion, their mental, physical, spiritual, and family. I have a holistic approach to my recovery, and I see myself in the graduation program. I will have my Cert 4 in drug and alcohol. By the time I'm in my graduation program, I'll be doing my um, diploma in drug and alcohol. The following year, I'll be doing my diploma in mental health. I feel it's God's calling me to become a guide for like-minded people and also for my approach to recovery. Yeah. So I need to give back what I'm receiving or else I'll never be able to hold on to it, you know? Yeah. With 180TC's guidance, I'm growing into the man I want to be, the father I never had, the son my mother always wanted, the brother my sister always needed and the friend I always knew it could be. Recovery is one day at a time with the love and guidance of God Life is now possible. I am extremely best, blessed and grateful to be at 180TC. Words cannot express how much it means to be. Tihei Māori Order. Tis the breath of life. Thank you. Fantastic.
We've got Mark now. Mark Wills coming up. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank um, Blue Mountain City Church for giving me this opportunity um, to come and do this. Um, if I went through my whole life, I'd have to have a book for all of you to read, but I'll basically um, put this down to the main points that actually brought me into um, recovery. So um, we'll go from here. Uh, my name is Mark Wells. I was born in Wentworth, Phil, New South Wales. I'm the youngest of three boys. I was initially born with the name Ian Mark Wells to my father Ross and mother Gay Wells. I don't remember much of when I was young or maybe I choose not to remember. What I can recall is that my father left my mother early, early on who, who then became uh, the sole care, care and provider for myself and my brothers, all under the age of six years old. My oldest brother Stephen was six, six years old um, and contracted um, meningitis and became extremely ill. My brother David was four and I was only 18 months old. My father left my mother and my family for another woman. My mum told us that my father couldn't handle the fact that my brother Stephen was extremely ill as meningitis had spread to his brain and he ended up with brain damage. I don't remember much being that young, but I know he completely ceased seeing us boys, his children. Um, he came over a, a couple of times over the years, but never returned. Um, my mother remarried sometime later to my now stepfather, Ron Mitchell, um, who had three kids of his own, Ian, Robin and Leanne. Now there were two Ians in the family. And because I was the youngest, my name was changed to Mark Ian Mitchell, with Mark now replacing Ian and Mitchell replacing Wells. I had a good upbringing, but I always felt something missing in my life, and now I know it was the absence of my father. Being a father myself now, I don't understand how he could have left us behind. I still haven't seen him um, since the day left. At approximately the age of 14, I began drinking and, and smoking pot as I found it took away the emptiness I had within myself. My oldest brother, Stephen, was institutionalised as he required care 24 hours per day, seven days a week due to the meningitis that had left him with permanent brain damage um, with no sight or the ability to take care of himself. Um, as such, my brother... Dave and I developed a close relationship. We became best mates, despite drinking and taking drugs together. It was a normal thing that we did together. When I was 21, I met my beautiful wife, Sandra. We worked together for one year before dating, and it was then I knew that she was the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. We ended up having six amazing children, Jess, Larissa, Skye, Shannon and Kieran. Um, and Jaden, sorry. Despite feeling blessed with my family, the presence of, of the emptiness still remained. And in order to fill that void, I continued to drink and take drugs. 
Due to my addiction, we had to constantly move because I wasn't able to, to pay the rent um, due to my addiction. I was mentally abusive to my wife and didn't treat her the way she deserved. She should have been treated like a queen. But I was selfish and couldn't see beyond my addiction. Uh, we lived on the Gold Coast for 14 years. Um, my brother Dave also moved up there to be around us. Wherever I seemed to move or live, drugs and alcohol seemed to follow. On the 1st of July, I received a phone call from my stepfather, a phone call that would turn my life upside down. I was told my brother Dave had been involved in a violent confrontation and was severely bashed and was in a critical condition and was admitted to the Gold Coast Hospital. My wife and I rushed there immediately after hanging up the phone. We didn't realise how severe it was until we got there and discovered that he was on life support. Um, severe injuries were incurred after somebody stomped on his head twice and he was in a really bad way. My stepfather arrives from Sydney on his own without my mother as she couldn't handle seeing him in that state. It was left to me and my stepfather to handle the situation. Initially, the doctors believed that my brother would pull through during the early days of being on life support. But as the days passed, there were no signs he was going to survive. <clears throat> um, a panel of, of uh, neurologists, seven to be exact, who will look after him. Um, on the 12th of July 2012, the panel of neurologists wanted a meeting with myself and my stepfather. I knew straight away it was going to be difficult news. They eventually told us the news we didn't want to hear. We were advised that my brother Dave was brain dead and that at the time the ambulance got to him after the incident, his brain was starved of oxygen for too long and he wasn't going to live. I was left with the decision on turning off the life support. My mother wasn't present, so I needed to sign the papers. I didn't want him to go. Um, he was my only brother left as my other brother was institutionalised with brain damage from the meningitis. So on the evening of the 12th of July, his life support was switched off and he was moved to palliative care. However, none of us were sure how long he would survive without life support. At 4am on the, on the morning of the 16th of July 2012, my brother and best mate, Dave, passed away. Um, It was the night I actually spent home with my wife and family as prior to this. I was at Dave's bedside day and night. I was at home asleep on the lounge when I received a call from my stepdad. My wife and I went to the hospital so that we could uh, say goodbye before the coroner took over his body. I felt it had become a murder case once um, he passed away from those injuries. Um, uh, the, the coroner um, had his body for a week 
um, and did all tests um, before they released his, borrowed, uh, his body and then we, we buried him a week later. Um, I didn't know how to, to grieve the loss of my brother Dave. I started using ice as much as I could to numb the pain and loss away. I eventually moved away from the, the Gold Coast and was placed in a house provided by Christ Mission Possible in Penrith. Um, my ice and alcohol addiction was out of control by this stage and similarly, similarly to my own father, um, the generational cycle of addiction, I walked out of my own family. I was in a really dark place. I thought my family didn't want me. I felt no love for anyone, including myself, and lost the will to live. Um, I recall once that I prayed to both God and my brothers to bring me to them as I was done with this life. I was on the street for three months without anything or anybody in my life. I felt that everyone I knew abandoned me. One night I was on a train to the Blue Mountains asleep and I had a dream that really rattled me. It was a dream about my family being at my own funeral and I could see the faces of my children crying around my coffin. All of a sudden I woke up. I hadn't taken ice for a few days by then and so the physical and emotional pain and sorrow for what I was doing to my family set in. Deep down I know... Deep down, I know they wanted their father back. They had a father that loved them dearly, but was losing the brutal war to addiction. I knew I had to take action fast and now before it was too late. I undertook the step of approaching Christ's mission possible and told him I needed rehab. Um, within a few weeks, I was admitted to 180TC. From the bottom of my heart, I genuinely believe that 180TC saved my life. I've now been at 180 for five months. Um, they've helped me let go of my past and have started to mend my relationships with my family. My kids are overwhelmed at having their father back and I'm starting to love myself again. 180TC's motto is rescue, restore, rebuild. And these words... Um, these are the words that hold truth. They have rescued me from addiction. My life is being restored and I am rebuilding a life with my family. We have a slogan at 180TC, which is no turning back. And it is that I aim to live my life by now. My kids deserve a father, my wife a husband, my parents a son, and I deserve a life with them. Thank you, everybody. Good. Thanks, Mark. Got Matt. Come on up, Matt. Yes, Matt. Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm 30 years old and currently residing at 180TC, undergoing a 12-month rehabilitation program. I have two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister. I also have been blessed with two beautiful daughters who are five and eight in this is my story. I grew up in a small town in Newcastle called Spears Point. I had loving parents that worked extremely hard and had a great 
extended family network. I went to a fantastic school called St Mary's and was involved in numerous sports which I excelled in. I played baseball on a state level and was an Australian champion in sailing. My parents worked above and beyond to help me and my siblings to achieve these goals by travelling all over the country to attend these sports, sport meetings. This was all going well until I chose to go from a good Catholic primary school to a state high school as I, it was closer to my home and more convenient for my parents. This I did have a choice in. When I first arrived at school, I was initially wasn't accepted as I did not know anyone from the school. Within the first few weeks, I was fighting my way into a bad crowd where I was eventually accepted and respected. This was my way. This is my way out. Of, this was where my way out of my uh, sorry. This is where my out of control life started. At 13 years of age, I was smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol on a daily basis. This continued until I was 15 year, years old. By then, I was introduced to pills and speed. Whenever I seemed to find myself, drugs existed and my drug habit worsened. This led me to increasing difficulties and trouble at school, eventually leading me to being expelled. After I was expelled, I started working for a few different employers to provide for my reckless lifestyle. By the age of 19, I commenced injecting ice on a daily basis. I was working and holding down a steady job but was still having brushes with the law, which led me to spending numerous nights in holding cells and standing in front of different judges and magistrates in court. In 2009, I met the girl of my dreams, Rachel. We both fell in love very quick, and straight away we were expecting our first child, my oldest daughter, Ella. I reassured myself I was going to be a father and chose to move the signal to get away from my life I was living and to pursue my dream job of being a coal miner. My drug use resided somewhat and became less frequent while I was waiting for the birth of my daughter. <coughs> but it was still a concerning issue. Approximately three months before my daughter was born, I talked my way into getting my dream job as a coal miner, although I literally talked my way into it. I started earning a good salary and believed somewhat that I had control of my drug habit. However, this wasn't the case. My relationship with Rachel began to suffer to my irrational behaviour. On the 28th of the 6th, 2010, my oldest daughter Ella was born and I thought this would be the spark that would change my life moving forward, forward or so I thought. My relationship with Rachel worsened and the only way I was accustomed to dealing with this was the dark road of drugs and addiction. The evil nature of drugs also influenced me in making one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Introducing drugs to my partner, Rachel. The mistake that I struggle with. And still can't forgive myself to this day. This made our relationship fun and exciting for a short while before we returned to our old ways of fighting and arguing. <clears throat> Sometimes over the smallest issues and dramatic consequences, such as moving out, in and out, and not being able to see my daughter's Ella for prolonged periods of time, which would make my drug habit worse, my, my addiction began <clears throat> to intertwine with my career. Although I was flourishing at work and constantly promoted, I was able to manoeuvre and avoid on-site mandatory drug testing. I was able to hide my drug habit from those around me at work and sadly I was extremely good at this. 
After a few years of the difficult nature of my relationship with Rachel and our drug habit becoming out of control, I decided to take action and sort out my life for my daughter Ella. I left my dream, dream job in order to focus on my own recovery. However, this did not work, and not long after, I was expecting my second daughter, Harlow. <coughs> this, this rekindled the relationship with Rachel and I, but only for a few months before it turned into old ways of arguing and fighting. Eventually, Rachel, the mother of my daughters, found a new relationship and moved on. <coughs> this was extremely difficult. At, at times, I'd go months without seeing or contacting my daughters. This was extremely difficult to fathom. On one occasion, I injected ice for 13 days consecutive or whilst I looked for my daughters. I drove down every street and every neighbourhood within 40 kilometres, radius of where I thought they could be. Uh, this ended really badly. I fell asleep behind the wheel of my car on the main road of Broad, in Broadmeadow. I was eventually woken by a senior sergeant at Newcastle Police Station on his way to work, asking me if I was all right because I appeared to be dead and I was lucky to be alive. I told the police sergeant my story and I was looking, that I was looking for my daughters. <coughs> I was already looking at some serious charges which include possession of commercial quantities of ice, weapons, possession and driving under the influence. The police sergeant, however, showed me some remorse and compassion on this day by downgrading my charges, so I did not spend a night in the holding cell and pointed me in the right direction to get my kids back. He told me that <coughs> it didn't matter. He told me that it won't matter, though, if my life didn't dramatically sort out. I already had not seen my daughters in a while, and it was my youngest daughter's Harlow's birthday, first birthday, in which I did not get to see her. I did make my daughters Ella and Harlow a promise, though on that day, that their father would no longer go and use drugs, end up in psych wards, strapped to beds, or placed in police holding cells, and would do anything I can to get them back. With the assistance of the police sergeant, I walked into Newcastle Family Law Court and commenced proceedings for a recovery order to try and locate my daughters. On the back of this, the Australian Federal Police joined the search for my daughters and were unable to locate them. This was really hard because I did not know what state my kids were in. Three months after I obtained the recovery order from court, Rachel rang. She said she was tired of running, come pick her and the daughters up from a caravan park in far north New South Wales. When they returned, I took custody of my girls, which I later received 100% custodial care, which I fought in court. Throughout this tiring process, I was no longer using drugs and commenced my own brick cleaning business called Newcastle Brick Cleaning and Superior Brick Cleaning, which turned out to be quite successful. My children were doing really well, starting school and reaching their milestones. Life was looking really good for me and my little girls, so I decided to reach out to their mother, Rachel. We had a conversation about her returning home to come live with us, uh, not only to live with our girls, but to try and help her with her drug habit. I made her a promise that I would give her custody if she sorted out her life. This would later be one of the worst promises I've ever made. Rachel returned home for 16 months and lived with us during this time. She had barely come home, and when she was home, the side effects of coming off drugs were hard to bear. For a reform user, this was hard, but I only tolerated it because I knew that the girls needed their mother and that, <coughs> and that I needed to help Rachel battle the same disease that I struggled with for years. Eventually, Rachel's drug use stopped and we were not fighting for the first time in seven years. Life was again looking up. 
and I honoured the promise and gave Rachel 50% custody. After two years of my own sobriety, I enrolled in Newcastle University through Open Foundation and commenced studying. After 12 months, I obtained a university admission equivalent of 87%, which allowed me to enrol into a double diploma of civil engineering surveying. I was three years clean and sober, and Rachel returned to her old ways, and I was seeing the girls less frequently, as Rachel would consistently be taking off with them. I started in integrating with some good friends that always tried to help me through this difficult time and figure out where my options were. One day I decided to go to the local RSL club and got drunk, when I, which then led me down to using needles again. After all this time, I thought I was okay. My drug habit again started spiralling out of control. Over the next few years, I spent countless nights in jail cells, strapped to beds and in psych psychiatric wards. <clears throat> where I always found a way to talk my way out of these difficult situations. I would then repeat the cycle by going to work high on ice, arguing and fighting with Rachel. Life was getting really bad for me, but more for my children that were caught in the middle of it. <clears throat> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be long before I was in full psychosis and there was no way of getting away from it. But in my usual manner, I simply tried to deal with it myself. I hid it from my family, friends, clients and employees. My life was on a complete destruction path. Destruction path, so I moved away from my kids into my own home and was not seeing much of my girls due to my work, drug habit, ensuring mental health problems. I would only let my girls come over and see me when I had slept and would not let them spend too much time there due to my negative commitments. Rachel and I were fighting worse than ever. Uh, she wanted to return home and try to take advantage of the situation by manipulating her way through them as much as she could. Late February this year, 2018, she turned up to my house with my girls and was playing with my mental health to try and get what she wanted at any means possible. I asked her to leave, but I kept the kids, not really knowing what was happening. <clears throat> I was in some of the worst psychosis I've ever been and my kids have been dragged right through it. On one occasion, I was driving around Musbrook with my kids in the car, trying to fight the demons in my head. I eventually stopped by police and charged again with driving under the influence. I talked my way out of it with police so they would let me leave for my kids and got into a taxi, headed straight back to where my car was stopped. We hopped into the car and I was having some very bad thoughts. I believed me and my kids were in danger and had to get away. I proceeded to drive erratically and ended up speeding down the M1 freeways of Sydney, crashing into two cars on the way. I finally stopped in Mount Druitt where a police officer ran onto the road and I swerved to avoid hitting him. I nearly killed this officer and he, then they eventually crash tackled me in front of my children. I was separated from my children which made the situation hostile and unbearable for me and my aggression towards police led me to being brutal, brutally bashed and beaten. My kids were publicly taken by facts on the news and I was sent to jail. I was blessed on that day. I appeared in court as both lawyer and judge saw that I had difficult mental health problems where they sent me to the pain mental health ward. For three weeks I was too ashamed and didn't have the courage to contact my family to see where my kids were.
the more I laid around in the mental health ward, the more I realised I wasn't going to be able to talk my way out of this, like previous situations in my life. Broken on the inside, I ring my mum to see where my kids were. She advised me that they were currently with her. She told me that they spent a night in foster care before they were released to my mum. My mum told me that I'm not allowed to speak to my girls until I was there 18, where I ended the call. That night, I believe God came and visited me and gave me the choice between death or rehabilitation. I then began to look into rehabs and 180TC caught my eye. I had multiple conversations with 180TC and Lee's assistants offered me an intake date to commence my journey. Whilst waiting to come into 180TC, Lee the reception, Leah, the receptionist, gave me the emotional support that everything was going to be all right. I explained her, to her my situation and she, re, she gave me reassurance and hope. On almost a daily basis, she, I talked to her. 180TC saved me, but there was still yet one more hurdle to overcome, which was being released back into police custody and attained bail in order to come to 180TC. I rang a few lawyers to commence this process, but all of them said I would have bail refused. Through God's help, I got bail. I wanted to get my life fixed and get my children back. I'm now six months into the 12-month program and doing really well. On my first week, I received my first phone call. To my little girls, which was one of the hardest phone calls I've ever had made. Currently six months in the program, I can see my kids whenever I want, have them come and sleep over when, when I'm on weekend leave. I'm working my way to get my children back, but I couldn't have done it without the help and support of 180TC and, the, and my mother who has supported me right through my recovery. And most of all, picked up the pieces of all my wrongdoings. I look forward to being an amazing father to my beautiful girls for the rest of their lives and showing them how to live life to full potential. Uh, giving them the future that they hope for and deserve. I want them to be able to plant the right seeds in their own children to break the cycle of addiction. Thank you for everyone's <laughs> Good, thanks. Thanks, Matt. We've got two more testimonies, Ben. We've got them or you come back next week. <laughs> Josh Newhouse. We've got two. Okay. Hello, my name is Joshua Newhouse. I am 25 years old and this is my story. Growing up, I had a good upbringing. I had a loving mother that did anything for me and a father that, extreme, uh, that worked extremely hard to raise and support the family. Um, I am the youngest of four. I have three older sisters. Growing up, my dad was the typical old school kind of Aussie, hardworking, supported the family, but very rough and uh, tough on the kids. I was the kind of kid from a very young age that always loved pushing the boundaries in all aspects of my life. I have always loved taking risks and getting a rush from that, whether it be from being a class clown at school, breaking the rules, breaking the law, doing dangerous stunts on anything that had wheels. 
I also loved being the first to try something that no one else wanted to do because of the fear or risk behind whatever the situation was. I was just extremely energetic and did not have an off switch. I guess some would say I still am like that. Sadly, these behaviours and the risk-taking type of personality is one of the main reasons of why I ended up with a drug and alcohol addiction. One morning, when I was just 13 years old, I was riding my push bike to school. I did not take my usual route like every other morning. I crossed a busy main road and I was hit by a speeding car. I almost lost my life. I had severe lacerations to my head and leg and I was uh, lucky to be alive. I remember blacking out just before the car had hit me and waking up briefly for a short time in the ambulance. Uh, wondering what was going on. I remembered seeing the ambulance guy cutting off my sports clothes and I remember yelling at him, saying, please don't cut my clothes off, I have sport today and I want to play. Um, this again just highlights how energetic and keen I was to have fun no matter what the consequences were. Sadly, this very energetic, uh, risk-taking type of personality still had, had me wanting more. When I was just 16 years old, my mother and father divorced. I eventually moved to live with my mum for some time, which I loved because it allowed me to have... Um, a lot more freedom due to my uh, father being strict and he wasn't around. I took advantage of my mother a lot. I took every opportunity to get out of the house and hang around people with the same mentality of mine. I began smoking pot, using party drugs, acid, ecstasy, pretty much anything I could get my hands on. And I also uh, began getting into trouble with the law a lot more. Um, but this was very exciting for me at the time. It did not faze me at all. When I was 17, I was introduced to methamphetamines or ice, and this is when my life began to slowly but surely spiral out of control. No money, no job, stealing, fighting, having those well-known ice rages at home, destroying the house on a weekly basis. The drug was absolutely ruining my life. But when things couldn't get any worse, I received $110,000 when I turned 18 for the car accident I was in. Um, I know $110,000 isn't a whole lot of money, but when you give that to a person that's not in the right frame of mind, um, that can do some serious damage. By this stage, my mum my had moved out of the house for her own safety. I began taking copious amount of drugs, thinking at the time I was a king for an 18-year-old. I thought I had everything. A little over 12 months later, I spent all my money. I only had the possessions that I had bought, which I soon after sold um, to support my habit. In the, end, it was, uh, in the end, once again, it was just me and my addiction. I had no friends or family that wanted to be around me because of the monster I had turned into. I was homeless a lot because I refused to stop taking drugs and my family were just too scared uh, to take me back at home because I was too unpredictable. I did absolutely anything to support my habit, which led me to get into trouble with the law a lot more. A little after my 19th birthday, my anger and bad temper eventually got the better of me and I was jailed for some time for seriously hurting someone one night. I was eventually released and I soon after continued back into addiction. When I was 22, I met the love of my life, my partner Ashley. She has been super supportive from the start, and from day one, she has always seen something in me that I could never see. I can honestly say that she has been one of the main reasons of why I'm here, standing in front of you today. I'm so lucky that I had her in my life when I did, because it really scares me to think what could have happened if she wasn't. The turning point for me was I had an overdose one night from having a shot of heroin. Um, at about 7.30 in the morning, August 2017, my dad found me laying on the bed, white as a ghost, and I had overdosed the night before. I was very close to saying goodbye once and for all. Luckily, I had been found and I was released from hospital a few days later. I remember one morning soon after this all had happened, 
I could see the fear in my family's eyes and in Ashley's eyes. They knew and I knew if I wasn't going to get help and if I was to keep going the way I was, um, I was bound to make a wrong decision and I could lose my life. I remember sitting there and it felt like I had to make a critical decision then and there. The only thing I had left in my life was my loving family and my partner. And at the time, fortunately, this was enough for me to say enough was enough. That's when I made the decision to call 1ATC. Having come so close to losing my life and making the honest decision to myself that I was going to fight for it, I came into 1ATC hungrier, hungrier than ever. I wanted a second chance to get my life together. I came into 1ATC with everything that I had left close, uh, held close to my heart. And, I still to, uh, and still to this day, I hang on to them very tightly. Now, 12 months later, I have hope. I have clear, a clear mind and a clear vision of what I want to do and where I want to be. When I came to the program, I surrendered, my, uh, I surrendered to the program and I surrendered my life to God. I have tried so many times to fight this addiction alone without God and have failed miserably every time. But as soon as I surrendered to God, asked for help and started believing that he could restore my life and give back my family's son they had once known and my partner, the man she had been praying for. The moment I believed this was possible was the moment I started receiving and it came true. These 12 months have not been easy. But I am so grateful for 1ATC and for my relationship with God. Not only has he restored my life, but I have never been so hopeful, so happy, so ambitious and so clear-minded. Last Friday, I graduated 1ATC. I have, I have just entered another 12 months of 1ATC as a graduate, um, which offers another 12 months uh, to study. Um, and to work, uh, work there on 1ATC, and I'm very, uh, very proud. Some days I close my eyes and I start picturing where I'm going to be in 10 years' time. This excites me a lot. I see a family home, I see marriage, I see kids running around and having a stable, loving father that's going to be present and there for them. I see peace, joy, and so much more. There would have been a time in my life when I would be thinking of these exact things a few years ago, and I would have just called them dreams that were completely out of my reach at the time. But I tell you what, now what I've seen possible when I believe in myself, with God in the centre of my life turning the impossible into possible, they are not just dreams to me anymore. They are things I believe for and things that I am so excited for now knowing I can achieve them. I know life throws challenges and hurdles along any journey you wish to go through. But I tell you now as I stand here confidently and proud that I'm going to continue to fight and I will not be defeated. Before I finish, I want to give a massive thank you to 1ATC and the team at 1ATC. Uh, the team at 1ATC have just been relentless with their support, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you have done in my life this far. Thanks for listening. Good. Thanks, Josh. Praise God. Just the support of our church and of many churches just make such a such a big difference the um the bike ride that's been going on for many many years it's the major fundraiser for 180 tc without the bike ride the doors would, would have closed like ages ago and it's um, last year we raised just over half a million dollars it was just uh just amazing and um and uh it comes from people that are able to to, to, to give ten dollars or a thousand dollars, you know, or more. It's just it's just just wonderful. The, the love and support from our church is very much appreciated. We've got time for one more testament. Josh, come on up.
How are you guys? I'm Josh. I'm 31 years old. Um, so I've got through, I've had four speakers, so there's all different stages that we go through in the program. Um, they're all different timing. Josh, as he said, he's just um, started the internship. I finished the internship nearly a year ago. So now I've currently been employed with 180TC for a year and a half. So my, I'll just go through... So I'll introduce myself, a little bit about my life. Um, my my, my um, journey pretty much started when I went to TC. So I'll, I'll go briefly through my childhood, what led me into TC and where, how I got to where I am now. So I'm 31 years old. Um, I'm a twin. I've got two older sisters. Um, my parents are from England, so are my sisters. Um, came from a loving family. I thought it was a loving family. There was a lot of love from my parents, from my sisters. My parents were alcoholics. So they were alcoholics since I was born, and um, they put, my mum still is now. Um, so I've got an interesting relationship with my twin brother. I don't know how, how many um, of you guys are friends that are twins, but they're usually pretty close. Not me and my brother. Um, for some reason, he had a pretty big vendetta against me. Um, he's tried to kill me a few times. He's put fire extinguishers out in my eyes. Fixed vapour drops, eye gouging, stabbed me with scissors. If you meet him, he's not that person today. He's completely different to what I am. I'm very a lot more confident than him, and he's completely different. At school, he was bullied a lot, and I made a vow with, with myself that he wouldn't get bullied anymore, and that wouldn't happen to me either. Two older sisters, one's five years older, one's seven, seven years older. So I've always, I'm, I'm the youngest, so I've always been the baby brother. My older sister, who um, is, is a Christian, she's the only Christian apart from myself in, in the family, um, she, she works for Hillsong, so that's how, how, how I found TC. My sister that's five years older, Martha, um, she was a problem child. She got kicked out of home when she was 14. Um, she started using drugs. She's been to jail. And I seem to follow in her footsteps. Um, my parents separated when I was... Um, just before I started high school... Um, just let you know a little bit. School for me was was not good. Um, I had learning difficulties. Um, I ended up being diagnosed um, four years ago with ADHD, ADD, uh, dysgraphia, which is like dyslexia. Um, but I was classed as a problem child. I'll, you know, I'll have to own some of it because it was me. But at the end of the day, I didn't understand what was being taught. So my my way of getting that out was to to miss. Um, to misbehave. So, where am I up to? When I um, started, so we moved when my parents split. Um, my dad was always going around around the world. He was an um, audiovisual engineer, so I really, didn't really get to see much too, of him, too much of him. But um, and in between moving from high school to primary school, I was sexually abused, which I, I suppressed it all my life until I got to TC. I knew I was searching for something, but I wasn't sure what it was. Me and my brother started smoking cigarettes. I remember the first time we started smoking cigarettes, we were about six years old. Got up one Saturday morning before my parents woke up, or before my mum woke up, and we were smoking their cigarette butts in the lounge room. And my sister got up and dubbed us in. Wasn't very smart. <laughs> what I add that the problems I had with my sisters and my brothers was all unprovoked, okay? Being a little brother, I did not cause any of it. <laughs> So at the age of 12, I remember we had a friend, um, he had a big backyard, we lived on acres, so we'd go, 
we'd steal a cigarette, pack it off my mum, and we'd go smoke in, in the tree. We called the tree the Bunga Tree. By that time, started, um, went to high school, very much the same as primary school, though I had a bit more freedom because I wasn't stuck with one teacher that I didn't like. I got more sport, I love music, I play, I play a few different instruments, and sport music became my passion. I uh, started playing soccer, started playing representative soccer, and it's one thing that I tried my hardest in. And I tried that hard that it took all my spare time up. Started playing, ended up um, dislocating my knee when I was 16 years old. And for the whole year, I was pretty much on crutches because once I got better, I went and dislocated again. So ended up getting new. Yeah, you get that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. So, so as I said, um, dislocated my knee. Ended up getting an air reconstruction, being 16, 17, 17 years old. That was, for me, that was devastating. My dream, I was probably never going to make it in the world, but that was my passion. And being a young kid, we had passion to drive ourselves. And I had nothing to drive, to drive myself and fill in that void. I stayed at high school, finished year 12, but I was only there because I, one, I got to be in a band, two, I got to play sport and hang out with my friends. I didn't get a UAI. I stayed at school because it was better than going to work. Finished high school and I moved to the Central Coast, moved to a beautiful country, oh, sorry, a beautiful place in, in Australia called Terrigal, aka God's Country. <laughs> um, I love the water, I had friends. When I moved into a house, the house I moved into, there was three other guys. So as I said, my name's Josh, there was a guy called Nathan, there was another guy called Josh and there was another guy called Josh. <laughs> it was a little bit confusing, so... Um, I ended up coming, we ended up um, coming up with my nickname Stingray, which I'm not going to get into how. It's another, that's, another, that's for another story. One of them was a DJ, one of them was a, um, was a carpet layer, and the other one was a full-time partier. And um, I didn't touch drugs except for, for, for I smoked pot and cigarettes, and I occasionally drink. Drinking for me was never really a problem because of the family that I came from. Um... Started working as a car player with, with Nathan, one of, the, one of the guys I lived with, and I stayed working with him on and off um, for pretty much until I came to TC. Um, to one of the guys that was a DJ, being a musician, I was instantly drawn to it. Started going out to a few of the clubs, and I, was, I, was, I loved partying. partying. Partying became my passion. That void that I've been trying to fill became my party passion. So over a few, it took, them six, it took me six months before I gave in and, and took any, any drugs. And once I took drugs, then my passion became my life. And my life, work, work was part of it. Work filled in, that, in the middle part, but then partying came. Once partying on the weekends wasn't enough, it became partying during the week. And... Um, in 2013, I got a phone call from my dad saying that he got cancer. And him being an alcoholic and, and a smoker, it wasn't, it wasn't such a big shock, but it was devastating for my family. As I said, there was a lot of love in my family. It was a very disorientated family, but there was a lot of love. Um, throughout my life, I've had a lot of death. And I seem to take it a lot better than most of the people in, in my world does. Um, when we all started getting our driver's licence, 
the first six months, I had eight people die in car accidents. And that was all just from a little country town called Silverdale. I've had, people, I've had friends being murdered. I've had friends from overdosing. I've had friends die from suicide. I've had friends from dying from cancer. To me, death became normal. Um, so I was, I was stuck in my own little world. My family were down in Sydney, and they were looking after my dad. My brother was living with my dad. My two sisters would come home from work, take him to his appointments, where me, being a selfish addict, was still doing the same stuff each week. I'd come down and come visit my dad and see how he was. Yep. Then I'd go back home. And for me, I saw it for a little bit, but then I went back to doing my same stuff. And for, for me, being as selfish as I was, I never saw what my family were going through. Not only was my dad sick, but my, my family had to see and, and help him through that. It took until he started getting a lot sicker. He'd been through multiple, multiple operations. And um, by that stage, my partying had stopped being on the weekends and it was every day. And it changed from party drugs to, to um, speed, which back in that day was big. And then it changed to, to ice, methamphetamine. That changed the world. That's changed Australia. There's not one drug that I've seen, and I've seen some of the most mentally strong, physically strong people, but that drug has taken them down. It's taken their families away from them. It's taken them away from their families. It's, not, it's the worst drug that's ever been made. So, I've stopped working, I've stopped partying, I've started selling drugs, and I've started taking drugs every single day. <laughs> Meanwhile, I don't speak to my family. And I'm still getting a phone call every now and then to asking how I'm going. They still care about me. They've got all this going on, but still me. The void that I was feeling, that I was trying to fill, I filled it, but with completely the wrong things. You know, so got to a stage where my mental health was not the same as it was and I was a pretty strong-minded character. It was getting worse and worse. My roommate at the time said, you need help. So, as, as I mentioned before, both my parents were alcoholics and norm normality for me was taking them to rehab every couple of months or to detox. So we went to this private, this private clinic that my um, dad went to and um, it deals with drug addiction and mental health. And... Um, I was in and out of the mental, mental illness part of the... It's called my mood disorder. I was in and out of there probably six times before I actually came to the conclusion that my mental health condition was caused by my drug addiction. But because I'm too pig-headed, that wasn't enough. So I went back out. It wasn't until the sixth or seventh time that I went there that my sister suggested that I went to the, the drug and alcohol and started to deal with that side. So I went there, I stayed there for three weeks, left and went back to my dad's house um, to help look after him. The most dangerous thing I could have done was gone there. Not only do I still have a drug addiction with no drugs, I had an all-you-can-eat pharmacy for my dad's medication. And this made me the person that I never thought I was going to be. Not only was there all the different types of pain medication, which... When, when you're dying, they give you some of the strongest things you can think of. So my breakfast was a concoction of his pain medication that he was going to have for breakfast and my ADHD medication, and all, I was not in a good way. 
my sister pulled me up one day and said, where's, where's all the medication going? And as soon as that, that was something triggered in me. I had, um, so my, as I said, my family from England, my aunties came over to, to see my dad. He was in his last couple of months. And um, my sister gave me this pamphlet and they said, She's, you, you need to have a look at this and think hard about this. It was a pamphlet for 1ATC and I was like, I do not need long-term rehab. You obviously don't know me that well. They obviously knew me a lot better than what I thought they did. Because not only does 1ATC, they, they look at your addiction. It, your addiction is a side... Is a, is, is a side it's not your main problem. Addiction does not define who we are. What we do, what we've done, does not define who we are. Once I swallowed my pride and said, okay, I'll go have a look. So 2015, um, October, sorry, August 17th, I went into the program. I was only going to stay there for a couple of weeks. It was definitely not the place for me. But do you know what? I've been there for three and a half years and there's nowhere else I'd rather be. <laughs> October 23, I got a phone call. Well, sorry, I think it was about a, three or four days before that saying your dad's not in, a bit, in the best shape. So we went to palliative care. Well, he was already in palliative care. So we stayed with him for three days and I took, watched him take his last breaths. And my last thing was the, <laughs> the last thing that I said to him before, it, before he had his last breath was that I'm going to be the best person that you've ever wanted me to be. I'm going to be the man of this house. The burden, the burden that I put on my family is not going to be any more. They've already had enough to worry about. I need to be the man of the family and I need to show my family that there is a better way. So that's not where the trouble finished, unfortunately, for my... As I said, my life pretty much started when I started TC. Got into, got into 1ATC, Dad passed away. The last grandparent, who was 96 years old, took her last breath too. Wasn't very close with um, that side of the family, that, that, those grandparents, but you know, for somebody that's lived to 96 years old, they've got some wisdom for you. And that's one thing that I always made sure that I listened to whatever she said, even if, she, even if it didn't make sense. Um... So the first six months of TC, Dad passed away, Nan passed away. Where I've grown up with, with riding bikes. I've got a lot of mates that still ride bikes. Um, got mates that have drag bikes. Got a phone call off my mum saying, uh, one of my friends... So when I grew up, I'm a twin. My two best friends were twins. I've got twin cousins. One of their sisters, one of the twins, has older sisters that are twins. So we're very close. We're like family. Um, my closest friend, Mitchell, he, he had a motorbike accident. He was on a drag Harley and he went about 125 kilometres into the side barrier. The bike squashed him, broke his back, his femur, his pelvis, punctured his lungs, broke all of his ribs, collarbone, brain damage. He was on life support. While I'm trying to process these first things, Dad, Nan, Mitchell, I get another phone call from the girl I've been seeing for the last couple of years that she was out with her friends and she woke up in another guy's house. She got date raped. She got drugged, she got dragged back to her place and she doesn't know what happened. For the first six months I was pretty numb, trying to process all this stuff that's happened to me 
And I think now, back to, if I was still out in the world and still using drugs, where would I be now? I probably wouldn't be here. Something has put me into this program. Something has kept me in this program. And there's a reason why I'm here now, helping these guys get through the program now. Not only have I never really studied in my life, but since I've been in my NTC, I have two diplomas. I have a diploma in drug and alcohol. I have a diploma in mental health. There's one reason why that I'd, 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 I go to work every single day. There's not one day I wake up and I don't want to go to work. It's because if I can help one of these guys for one little minute of that one day, that's why I'm here. Yeah. So I just want to wrap that up. I just want to say to these boys that you can do anything. Don't let the bad days dictate a good life. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Fantastic. I'll tell you what, stay standing for a moment. I'd just love us to reach out our hands towards the 180 guys. We're going to receive an offering in a moment. But before we do, I just want to pray for them and pray for this offering and pray for God's best over their life. So let's reach out our hands towards all these 180 guys and just believe for God's best. Lord, I just thank you for every one of these incredible young men, Lord. I thank you that you've saved and you've called them, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you've got a great future and a great purpose for them, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, for any distractions, anything that would try to come to their mind or take them off course, Lord Jesus, that you'd help them to stay rock solid, Lord God. Strong, Lord God, in their faith. Courageous, Lord God, in the face of adversity, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would bring them through. As they've made this decision to change, Lord Jesus, give them the strength and the courage to have the discipline to see it through, I pray. And we thank you for lives that are going to be changed. Many, many, many more lives that are going to be impacted through the great work of 180TC. Lord, as we give today, as we sow into this ministry, I pray you would bless and you would multiply it, both the men and the women's home, Lord Jesus, that there would be lives changed eternally. In your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.